Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 2? Psalm 2 is in the introduction of book 1 of the Psalms, which will carry us through the 41st Psalm. Psalm 2 is sort of juxtaposed to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 speaks on an individual basis. Righteousness and the way of unrighteousness. Now here it goes on a national level, a national scale. Psalm 2 is... Well, you can get as deep in Psalm 2 as you want to, um, but we'll start and see what happens to us when we get into it. I quote Psalm 2 quite a bit, and it is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament, and we'll see why as we go along. So I call this Psalm God's Anointed Messiah King. Let's consider, first of all, um, let's consider, first of all, how to make my clicker click. Will it work now? There we go. Verses one through three, the insurrection of fools. First of all, scheming the nations of the world, scheming against God and his Christ. Secondly, positioning themselves against God and his Christ. And then the third thing, open rebellion among the nations against God and his Christ. This is a thing that takes through, that carries through all the way to the consummation of the age and will even be seen in a rebellion at the close of the millennial kingdom. Thus Yahweh allowing sin to reach its pinnacle, proving to us that we are nothing without him and nothing without his grace. Then he brings it all to an end, great white throne, new heaven, new earth. Okay. First of all, the nations are scheming against God and his Christ. Why have nations gathered and why do kingdoms think vain things? The word for vain means empty, useless. It's not going to come to anything. Now you and I can stand at, at this point in history, human history, and we can look back and those kingdoms about which we know there are others that we don't know anything about. There, I'm sure, were great kingdoms in the Far East and there were great kingdoms in the Americas. While those kingdoms in the Bible world were doing their thing, kingdoms are recorded in the Bible only as how they are relative to the people and purpose of God. That is directly related, namely Israel. So you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream and, and so forth. And, and you have that mention 
of the eight in which there were seven and seven which became eight over in the book of the Revelation. So God Almighty acknowledges metaphorically or, or not, 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 not that like that, like, like an illustration, these certain kingdoms as they directly related to the people of God. And of course, the people of God are carrying the purpose of God. Well, that means that in a fallen world, in a fallen universe, where in a universe where Satan has rebelled and has carried a third of the angels with him, in a fallen world where Adam and Eve sin and, and fell in their nature and were rebels against God. So in, in, a, in a state of fallenness all across God's creation, unless God chooses out from among that covenants with certain people and divinely calls them to himself and protects them, unless he does that, Everything else is subjected to the state of fallenness, have fallen. They were born in sin. So kingdoms, apart from the theocratic kingdom in the, that's brief in the, New, in the Old Testament, but then, of course, culminates in the millennial kingdom, the kingdoms of the world are born out of a fallen system. They're not theocracy. They're something else. Now, against all of that is the word of God, the reality of God, the sovereign purpose of God, the declarations and proclamations of God. And in that, those whom he calls to himself must acknowledge because of who we are in him. It's in our nature now in, in rebirth, regeneration. We understand that there is one true and living God and that we have no hope without him. That mankind cannot scheme for himself a utopia. He cannot build for himself perfection. I put this in Facebook, but it brings to my mind because I studied it a good bit well, a couple of hours yesterday, read everything that I could. Saudi Arabia right now is built right now. It's going, I saw this, it's a 75 mile long city. It's in the desert, but it goes to the sea. And there's a, a, a production, there's a promotional video about it. It's going to cost a trillion dollars. Crown Prince, yada, yada, whatever his name is, is spending the money. This is his project. A city, it's straight. It's in a straight line, and it goes 75 miles. It's a 75-mile-long city, and it's not nearly that wide, so it's just a straight line. It's, it's like a tunnel or something, I don't know. But the city is primarily composed of two buildings, each of which are 1,600 feet high. 
And what's that, 160 floors, I guess, 160 stories? 1,600 feet skyscraper joining the other 1,600-foot-tall skyscraper. And together they go for 75 miles. It's quite wide. It's designed to house 9 million people. It will be, it will be perfectly self-sustaining. It won't have any impact on the environment. All of the water and all of the food and everything that's done in that city is uh, recycled. I'm not sure I want to eat a meal there or even drink a cup of water. Where are they going to get that water from? In the desert. You know, they're in the desert. But it's a, it's a there's a tunnel underneath and a train can go from one end of that 75 mile long city to the other end in 20 minutes. So I guess you make stops along the way and they have this artificial intelligence created uh, movie about it. And people are living, you know, up from here to 1600 feet high and they're, they have some kind of... Um, electric flying car that stays within a certain place and they're going back and forth and there are these there are these crossways and crosswalks all over the place and it's uh it's mind-boggling to think about but it's actually under construction uh already moving the earth and it's a big production over there and i, I said in my post that it reminds me of what the Bible says in the Revelation about that great city of Babylon. And in 17 and 18 of the Revelation, it is the seat. That city in the Revelation is the seat of world power, world religion, world government, world economy. That city is, is the heartbeat of the world. Governmentally, religiously, economically. Now, I don't know. Here's a, maybe here's a precursor. I don't know. Or maybe somebody's going to come along and take it over and rename it Babylon. I don't know. But it is, it is being designed to control, obviously, oil, but everything else that the world needs. Uh, economic power, food. Uh, it will, you know, it's, it's designed to be powerful, to be a seat of power in every way that is imaginable. That, that is a Gentile scheme. That's a scheme. I'm sure this guy, crown prince, whatever his name is, has in his mind that the world's ultra wealthy people who control various parts of the the world's gears whether it's economy or industry of some kind or maybe military all that stuff and of course administratively the seat of power it must be in his mind surely that this will be where they'll all be and live and all of the world will have to more or less follow whatever comes out of this 
city. Well, that is at least a type, a strong type of the city that's mentioned. You know, through the years, people say, well, Babylon, that must be Washington, D.C. Babylon, it must be Rome. Babylon this, but have you ever thought? And it never entered into the mind of people who studied prophecy that there could actually be a super city that the world would come together in a project to build such a city. Now that is the product of the thought of man. We can run this world without God. We can feed ourselves, we can protect ourselves, we can produce energy and power for ourselves, we can make economies rise and fall according to their obedience to the us, and we can be all-powerful. That's, that's, that is the scheming of man thinking to succeed nationally, per nation, per kingdom. That is the, that is the response of fallen man against the will and purpose of God as it is so well outlined in the Bible. So who's going to be the head of all of that? Well, in that future city, it'll be the Antichrist. And he, he rides on a, a scarlet whore who, who, who is a false religion, false religious system. The world just goes along with it. So, and that's why when Babylon begins to be destroyed, the whole world weeps. There goes my job. There goes my, there, there goes my investment. There goes everything. It's gone. And the world weeps over the loss of a world system. Well, back that up a little bit. We are in the throes of the world effort to live without God. That's what the Tower of Babel was all about. We don't need God. Let us make to ourselves our own name of deity and let us build for ourselves a tower to heaven. So there's scheming. But here's what he says. This scheming is empty. It's useless. It's ridiculous. Now this dude, he, he may accomplish this 75 mile long city. I don't know. Or he could get it started and the Antichrist could complete it. I don't know. But it brings into our minds the very weighty thought that maybe we ought to take the book of the Revelation literally instead of symbolically, like we have forever since there was a book of the Revelation. Because underlying all of it is the scheming of the nations. There is no godly nation. There are nations that may go through eras of godliness, and godliness would be reverence, I guess. That doesn't mean salvation. That just means that they understand the importance of, of moral principles. 
That happens in the world because when, like in this case of Canaan, when they got so utterly wicked, God brought in Israel to destroy them. But then what happens to Israel? Well, they get sinful along the way. And they lost their way along the way. So the nations are scheming something that is empty. It's useless. It won't come to a thing. That brings us to verse two. Once they start the scheme, then they begin to position themselves. Kings of a land stand up and nobles take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Christ. You see that last word there. Well, anyway, the word comes from Mashiach, Messiah. It means his Messiah, his Christ. The world, the leaders of the world, kings and nobles, take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Christ, the true and living God and his eternally appointed Savior. That's what the world does. World Economic Forum, United Nations. I haven't heard a Christian message preached at the United Nations in my life, I don't think. I heard the Israeli prime minister quote scripture, but there wasn't a mad rush to the altar when he got through. These people have their own satanic agenda. They can't help themselves. You understand that? They're part of the world and unless and until God graciously intervenes in their lives and draws them to himself. They're in the same mess they were born into and will die therein. They can't help themselves. So no wonder the nations of the world after World War II rushed to create the United Nations. We certainly can't follow the biblical paradigm. Nobody will go along with us there. So we're gonna have to make something up and Make it look good and give ourselves more power. League of Nations before that, it failed. Nation after nation after nation. And the boundaries of nations never stay the same. I read an article, a journal article from a a research team. And it was politically motivated but America was drawn, the United States of America was drawn into five separate nations. And their, their hypothesis is, their premise is that there are actually five different nations in the United States of America. And that it can't stand like it is because of these five separate nations. And they were f- pretty much geographically uh, divided. Well, that brings me back to something I've told you about many times, and that was that, that map of the pre-World War I United, uh, world, that world map when I was at Sycamore in the, in the uh, Sunday school office. Great big, it wasn't that big, but it was huge. And it was old, you could tell it was old. And you hardly recognized Europe or, or Asia or you know, the Middle East. You couldn't, you, there were nations... Germania, for your Prussia, uh, all this kind of stuff. 
You, you didn't recognize. And so wars come along and then there are new boundaries carved. Why did these wars come along? Because somebody gathered with other somebodies of like mind and thought and thought a vain thing apart from God's way and will and went to war and then carved the thing up all over again according to how the winners wanted power. And I mean, you can go on with this, right? This goes all the way back, even to back into Genesis where Keteleomer and those four armies came against the cities of the plains because they wanted that wealth and they wanted that power. And Abram and 318 trained servants filled with the Spirit of God defeated four kings and their armies for the sake of God's person, Lot. Didn't matter about anything else. It was Lot. Now, you can go all the way through the Bible and you can go all the way through history as it stands since the canon of scripture has been completed and you can go all the way up to this present day and even now there's a great struggle in the Middle East. There are threats in what South America that Venezuela is going to invade its neighbor because they have as much uh, crude oil reserves as Venezuela does. I mean, you just hear this stuff all the time. And constant wars between these little nation states or whatever in Africa, they're just fighting all the time. None of them saying to the others of them, why don't we see what the Bible says? Nobody says that. They're positioning themselves against the true living God and have ever since, ever since time, space, continuum, ever since... Sin was seen into the, into the universe, introduced, fallen, but God's up to something. Yet all of these powers are, are counseling against Yahweh and his Christ. You cannot separate Christ from God, respective to the relationship that exists between the true and living God and his people. The only way we are his people is because of his anointed. There's no other way. God is otherwise unapproachable. You can't get to him. God has to choose the way and select the method and manner. And of course, it is very personal to God because it involves his Christ, his son. Rebellion, open rebellion in the world. Let us break their bands. Whose bands? Yahweh and his Christ. Let us break their bands and cast off their cords from us. That's why in the due course of time in any era of history, Gentile governments, human government has to oppose the Bible. They don't have a choice in their fallen state. They have to oppose the true and living God. They don't want to believe that humanity must kneel before another entity. They want themselves to be that entity. They want to be worshiped themselves. They want to be the ones who are the providers and the sustainers so that they can be in charge. And so they are directly opposed 
to Yahweh and his Christ, and they spend their existence in rebellion, seeking to break the band and the cords that otherwise join God and his creation. That's what they spend their time, that's their job. You know as well as I do, it's, incre- it's becoming increasingly dif- difficult in the United States of America to be a true born-again believer. It's getting more and more, it won't get any easier. Not until Christ comes. We have to be prepared for that. God's people have suffered all the way through ever since Cain murdered Abel. God's people have suffered because they collapsed in the presence of sovereign grace, acknowledging that something had to be offered in our place for our sin, that we are sinners. That's what Abel did when he offered his sacrifice. Cain wouldn't do it. All the way through the history of mankind, let us break their bands and cast off their cords from us. Let us prove to ourselves and the world that we don't need God and his Christ. Well, okay. Let's look on. This begets the indignation of God. So what does God do then? First of all, he mocks the nations. He who dwells in heaven laughs. Okay, so, you know, a thousand years is a day to God, a day is a thousand years. So to you and I, this history has gone on and on and on, but God just sees it sort of from just sort of from one epoch or era to the next, and he laughs. And he says to himself, that's the silliest, dumbest, funniest thing I've ever heard. These, these little amoebas thinking that they can stop me from what I have declared. So God laughs at them. Adonai, he uses the word Adonai here because he shows himself to be the master of everything. Adonai, master, supreme master, supreme provider. We don't have anything without God. All God has to do is dry up the water, dry up the farmland, or worse than that, bring a flood. California is suffering greatly right now in floods. And I look at it and I think how horrible that, what power this torrential water comes along. Or in the case of that island in Hawaii, all he's got to do is little open up a little, pop the cork off of a little volcano somewhere and Things get really bad. I read about how, and I don't know this, Lord knows I'm not a geologist or anything else like that, but all I can do is read and think that these people probably know what they're talking about. You've heard this, I'm sure Yellowstone is supposed to be some kind of super volcano. From what I understand, it'll be at least 600,000 years before it blows. So y'all just keep coming on into Yellowstone. It's okay. I'm going I'm to live in Miami, but y'all come on to Yellowstone. Well, I mean, I don't mean to mock them. Well, yeah, I do. I mean to mock them. Adonai mocks them because he's the master of it all. I saw this. 
picture that depicted this little white speck against a black background. Little tiny white speck. And this great big yellow circle. And this is the earth and here's the sun. And somebody said, now tell me that we're the ones who control our climate. <laughs> you know, that's kind of funny. It all comes from the sun, right? Well, anyway, okay. We have these big ideas, these big thoughts, apart from the word of God, apart from God. It's not going to work. He can do anything he wants to do anytime he wants to do it. So then after mocking the nations who have rejected him and sought to be broken away from him and his Christ, he speaks. Then he speaks to them in his wrath. He's mildly entertained, but it's really making him angry. And he frightens them with his sore displeasure. God mocks, God speaks, and then God declares. But I have enthroned my king on Zion, my holy mount. Now, let me do a little Hebrew work here, okay? I have set, I have established, I have enthroned. In the Hebrew, it is in what's called the call. Perfect, call perfect. This is, it's, and the call is the simplest. In the Hebrew of a verb. And it's very simple, it's very plain. There's nothing difficult. And in the perfect tense in Hebrew, it means that it's done. It won't ever change. It's already happened. Now we can read Hebrews chapter 12 and we can see that actually the things on earth that are named Jerusalem, whatever, they're actually types of what's in heaven. So in Hebrews 12, we read that there is a Mount Zion. In heaven. It's a mount of, of high power. I have enthroned, I have set, I have established, call perfect. My king on Zion, my holy mount. Here's what he's saying. Spend all that money. Spend your life. Take yourself to your grave. Try to pass that baton to the next generation and let nation after nation, kingdom after kingdom, let them come. Let them despise Yahweh and his Christ. But I'm telling you, Yahweh says, I have already established my king on Mount Zion. And that's where we're headed. So in every generation, God is calling his own out to himself and, himself, and then someday, the last one will be called. So here we go. I have enthroned, already happened. Not going to change it. My king on Zion, my holy mount. He is unassailable. The deal is done. Now, let me go back and remind you that the father entered into an eternal covenant with the son before there was ever anything, before even the plans were laid out, the blueprint, the foundation of the world. 
The Father gave to the Son those who would be his own. Nothing, not even the fall of man can stop it because the fall of man is counteracted by the coming of the Christ in the flesh and spilling his blood and thus redeeming his own. He paid the price. Now, okay, this comes into play here. But I have enthroned my king on Zion, my holy man. It's done. There's nothing that all of the nations of the world can do about it. And they'll try at Armageddon. They'll all come together. <laughs> and they will try. They'll try to stop the return of Christ. That's, that'll have me laughing. The son of God and his inheritance. Let's look at it. Now it changes from the voice of the Father to the voice of the Son. The Father has said, let me tell you what I've done in eternity, and you're not going to change it. And the Son says, he's right. I'm not going to give up this spot. You can't take it. Here we go. The decree. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. Now this is deep. Stay with me on this. God knows everything from the beginning to the end and all points in between. And what is beyond the end and what's before the beginning. John chapter 1, we studied it. The agent of creation is God the Son. God is God. The concept of the Godhead and the Trinity will be understood in the time and space continuum. This day, what day? The day that came forth out of eternity. God saw the day. That it was good. So out from eternity into time and space where you and I will exist, do exist, where God's own exists. He says, this day I have manifested you, begotten you, brought you forth. Now, that, that wasn't necessary when there wasn't any time and space. Very God of very God. The angels collapsed in worship. After their creation. Before that, I can't know how he was worshipped. But by his pleasure, he would create time and space and give a very special gift to his son from within that time and space. And when that day, first day happened, this day, here is what is encapsulated in all of human history. From now until the consummation of all of it, until it's all destroyed and there's a new heaven and a new earth. This is what I've done. And the son acknowledges it. Declared now, 
Because now, and this, this wasn't a thing that had to be, it was, but it, if we're not around to see it, there was no need explaining it. You know, it's like the tree that falls in the forest, right? But now in time and space, here's how we understand it. The father has given the creation to the son who by his own power made everything. John chapter one. Okay. When it was made, now the one who is seen in time and space, the son is declared to have come forth from God and namely the father. This day, creation, creation day. Now I have expressed and given you to time space continuum. And I've given you a gift therein that will always be yours. Okay, now, verse 8 the inheritance. Back to the Father. Request of me, and I will make nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. And thus it is declared that he is sovereign over all. You shall break them with an iron rod. That word probably means a scepter. That stick that only the king can hold. And he declares his word and it is done. He makes law and it's done. You shall break them with an iron rod. Like a potter's vessel, you shall shatter them. Now that's at the end of all things. In the time and space continuum, the fall of man and now, as humankind grows in the earth and across the earth, rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. Curse God and his Christ. Let us break away from them. His word means nothing to us. Well, that nation will die and another nation will come and that kingdom will fall and nations will form out of that kingdom and this goes on and on and on until the king of kings comes again. And he will break them and he will shatter them because sovereignty is his. Despots in world history have sought absolute sovereignty and they never found it. Somebody else came along meaner, bigger, stronger than they were, whatever. They didn't have eternal life. You remember, I, I know you remember every Wednesday night when we studied Isaiah about 12 years ago. I know it made such an impression. But there's a portion in Isaiah where the world rulers that had died are in hell. They're, they're in, they're in Hades, and they're sitting around kind of saying, to paraphrase, they're sitting around saying, boy, we messed that up, didn't we? We did that all wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, you did. 
they'll be, I saw the dead, both small and great, stand before the great white throne. Then there's admonishment, okay? Can't ever leave it without a call to them. Number one, be wise. And now you kings, be wise. Be admonished. Accept this instruction. You judges of the earth, be humble. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with quaking. Finally, be ready. Arm yourselves with purity, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For in a moment his wrath will be kindled, the praises of all who take refuge in him. We praise him for his wrath. Two, observe and to watch the leaders of the world arrogantly and filled with pride, pridefully stand against God and his Christ. Abuse his word and his people. We can say to ourselves, your time's coming. Because he has established his kingdom and his king, his anointed, his Christ. And he will at last stand in this world. Job, Job acknowledged it. I'll see him, he said. I'll see him and not a single other one, him. I know my caliph, my kinsman redeemer lives. At the end of all things, he'll stand, namely, above all others. Well, let's stop there and uh, we'll have our deacon prayer time.